Hi everyone, Jason here. On May the 14th, Stephen and myself will be appearing with the one and only Mark Lewison at the Pavilion Theatre in Dunleary, Dublin. We're going to be celebrating 60 years of a hard day's night and we would love you to join us. For tickets, go to paviliontheatre.ie or nothingisrealpod.com. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. Recently, I asked Mint Mobile's legal team if big wireless companies are allowed to raise prices due to inflation. They said yes. And then when I asked if raising prices technically violates those onerous two-year contracts, they said, what the f*** are you talking about, you insane Hollywood ass!" So to recap, we're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Welcome to Nothing Is Real, a podcast about the Beatles. Everybody thinks they know the Beatles, but how much do we really know? My name is Jason Carty. My name is Stephen Cockcroft. And we're live on tape from Dublin. We have often touched upon the conversation of who is the true fifth Beatle. But the reality is there might only really be one man. And that is the person we are going to be talking about today. Mr. Stuart Sutcliffe, who is a fascinating figure who casts a long shadow over everything we know about the Beatles through to this day. And the big question of the what if and the what could have been. So he was an official member of the band there for a short time. I like the fact that he was the only member of the band that left voluntarily and on good terms. He's the only member who left who would have been welcomed back, is my theory. I think that's probably correct. Mm. He would have been welcomed back by most of the band. <laughs> well, we shall get to that exciting point. And uh, I'm sure, obviously, everybody listening to us knows that, you know, the, the overall arc of Stuart's story that he was a member of the band, he left the band and he passed away in Hamburg in 1962. But it is part of the Beatles, you know, mythos, his existence. We don't really, he's almost like, I think of like the, the singer Nick Drake. He's one of these characters who we don't really have any permanent reminders exactly of what he was like. He's very spectral. Yes, he appears in photographs. You know, he, he is photographed a lot mm. because of uh, Astrid Kirscher and his connection there. There are no signed recordings of Stuart Sutcliffe. So we don't know what he sounded like. We don't know, you know, he, he sang with the Beatles. Nothing is recorded. And yeah, you look at him in those photographs and he is this spectral presence. He's like James Dean. He's, I mean, he physically, he resembles James Dean in some of the photographs. Mm. I mean, he's an incredibly good looking guy, short, but he has charisma. He has character. There's something about him. And as you say, the fact that he exits so early in the, uh, in the film, mm. but yet his presence looms large all the way through. He crops up, you know, on the cover of Sgt. Pepper. Lennon refers back to him. He appears on the cover of Anthology. He's there. He is a presence. He is a Beatle. And obviously, you know, part of his time in the band overlaps with Pete Best. And there's a very significant difference we'll see as we tell the story where, you know, the, there's this legend that Pete was never really a Beatle. Mm. But Stuart was a Beatle. Yes, I think so. He's absolutely embedded in the band and he's a key part of the early story in terms of what they look like, mm -hmm. their image, what they sound like what their name is. Yes. So 
you know, they would be a very different band if he hadn't been part of the band for the period of time that he was in the band. Absolutely, because not only is Hamburg the legendary 800 hours of rehearsal, they meet key players like Astrid, like uh, Klaus Fuhrmann, like Jürgen Vollmer, that will influence their look, mm. which sets them apart in 1962 from how all their competitors, how all the other bands in England look. They have this continental look. That that influence comes directly via Stuart. And again, not to completely pitch it as a Stuart versus Pete Best thing, but I don't think you could say the same for Pete Best, that there was a long tail of influence no. from Pete Best's time in the band. So even if you look at it from those terms, Stuart's very important. Yes, absolutely. What is Stuart's background? One of the things that I find fascinating is that Stuart is not a childhood friend of John Lennon. So he's born in Edinburgh, he is brought up in Liverpool, and he does not meet John Lennon until they are both studying at the Liverpool College of Art. And it's Bill Harry uh, that people will know from the Mersey Beat newspaper. We maybe talk a little bit about him. But he introduces John and Stuart at Art College. So by this stage, you know, John is already in a sort of relationship with Cynthia. He's got Paul in the band. George is in the band. Stuart arrives fairly late in the day. And I think it is significant that John is very much the leader whenever you're looking at Paul and George. And there's a constant jockeying for position. Who's going to get close to uh, John? Who, you know, On whom is John going to bestow his, his favours, his friendship? Mm. And then suddenly Stuart arrives completely out of the blue and he sort of moves into that pole position. Yeah, it's it's the the timeline is is very striking. So as you say, John Paul and George are that formed unit in mm. 1958, and there is this age difference where I think George is about seven or eight years younger than Paul. Is that At right? At least seven or eight years. And, uh, and Paul is about a fortnight younger than John. We jest, but they do have a thing going. Even though John is the elder kind of leader, and yeah. as you say, they're both trying to impress John, and they have been friends with John through you know, a, a revolutionary period, you might want to say, in 1958, where he's leaving school, he's trying to get into art college and his mother passes away. Yeah. Uh, so, yes, yeah, Stuart arrives uh, into the movie, to keep using that metaphor, at a point where they're not, maybe not exactly adults, but they're 18. John is 17 going on 18 later in the year. And it's it's the start of the rest of their lives. And, yeah, Stuart, the kind of the the the, the legend is that, well, John's a proper art student and Stu Stuart's an art student and they're going to hang out now and do kind of grown-up things, yeah. which Paul and George must have felt, oh, we better <laughs> get our act together. Yes, and there are so many formative experiences. You, you know, we can talk about John and Paul and the loss of their mothers and there are shared experiences here. There is an ongoing relationship and Stuart just arrives completely sort of from slightly from left field, but he is the quintessential art student. George would describe John at this stage as a big Ted. You know, he's a teddy boy. He's a hooligan. He's, mm. by his own admission, he's kind of smashing up phone boxes and he's working out all of those issues that arise from his childhood and his mother and all of that is still being worked out. Stuart is the quintessential, straight from central casting, art student. Mm. And John, I think wants that. He wants to be an artist. He regards himself as an artist, but he perhaps can't quite 
believe himself to be an artist or believe himself to be worthy of that place. And Cynthia will talk about Stuart sort of helping him and coaching him. And I think there is an element here where John looks up to Stuart. Yes, there's. this is the start of a recurrent theme, I think, throughout John Lennon's life, where he is an artist, but he constantly needs a facilitator or a reinforcer. So you could argue that Stuart is the first in a role that eventually moves into Paul McCartney, that eventually moves to Yoko Ono, where yeah. John has somebody in his corner who is justifying the artistic decisions he is making. Um, you know, because there's always this kind of take in, in John's mind where, you know, this kind of, oh, you know, this kind of what starts as anti-avant-garde and, you know, he, he's really always trying to fight the pretense of being an artist in some ways. I think that's very fair. I think John does do that thing where he vacillates between thinking he's a genius and thinking he's an idiot. Mm. And he needs, in sort of modern parlance, he needs validation. He needs someone to to, to be reassuring him and saying, no, you're, you're really good at this. This is worthwhile. And Stuart fits that mold. And Cynthia talks in her book, he basically said, Stuart Sutcliffe taught John how to think through the act of composition, planning a painting so that it would create a universe of its own. So he has a raw talent, but he doesn't mm. know how to focus this. And I think this idea of having, yes, a collaborator or a facilitator, Stuart is one of the first of those. Yes. And you mentioned there that Stuart and John are brought together by Bill Harry. It's worth taking a second to say he's an interesting chap in the whole history of uh, the Merseyside music scene. He absolutely is. So he's at uh, the Liverpool College of Art as well, but he decides to uh, get into publishing effectively. Hmm. So he publishes a magazine called Jazz in 1958. You're familiar with Jazz, jazz magazines. magazines. Yes. And um, <laughs> he then um, borrows some money and he, put, he starts up uh, Mercy Beat. So 6th of July, 1961, the first 5,000 copies uh, sell out. And suddenly you've got a fortnightly music magazine on the Liverpool scene. And again, it's difficult to overemphasize how important that publication is. It's, you know, that famous photograph, Beatles top pole, yep. John Lennon's early writings get published in there, the whole story about man with the flaming pie. Bill Harry is right in the middle of all of that. Mm. And Brian Epstein starts writing for Mersey Beat. Yep. And so again, Bill is right in the middle of that story. And he has published a million at last count <laughs> books about the Beatles, some, some of which I have to say are excellent. Um, yeah, it's true. Like Mersey Beat brought together the Beatles and Brian Epstein before mm. they were brought together in real life. Yes. They were both kind of on the pages. And, you know, you forget that the Beatles kind of front page top pole is before they had any kind of record contract or anything like yeah. that. So um, it's an essential document of, of those times. Um, but they go to Liverpool Art School. This is where John is there, Cynthia's there, Lennon, and um, Stuart Sutcliffe is there. And there's a, you know, there's there's other friends around there as well. Yes, there's a very interesting, slightly mysterious guy mm. who's referred to as, who's called Jeff Muhammad. And he is at the art college and he's much older than everybody else. And he, he sort of described as, you know, he dresses very badly. He <laughs> smokes, chain smokes, uh, not entirely sure he bathes very much, but 
he is someone that John Lennon strikes up a friendship with. And John Lennon has talked about him. And he said, I was pretty self-destructive at college. I was a drunk, smashed phone boxes on the street in Liverpool. Unless you were in the suburbs, you had to walk close to the wall. And to get to the cavern, it was no easy matter. Even at lunchtime sometimes, it's a tense place. It was mainly one long drinking session. But when you're 18 or 19, you can put away a lot of drink and not hurt your body. At college, I always got a little violent on drink. But I used to have a friend called Jeff Mohammed, God rest his soul, who died. He was half Indian Arab, and he would be like a bodyguard for me. So whenever I get into some controversy, he would ease me out of it. So it's another member of Lennon's group. Mm. But again, he's older than Lennon. And the temptation is to think this is this is the first of the father figures or the second after Uncle George of the father figures in, in Lennon's life. And he seems to act as a protector. Mm. But Jeff and John are also sisters, or I should say, Ugly Sisters, Ugly the Liverpool sisters. Art School pantomime of 1959 with a fairy godmother called Fairy Snow, played by Stuart Sutcliffe. And um, we have some text here that you've kindly reproduced for me that uh, you can see the hand of John Lennon in the script for the Liverpool Art School pantomime. Uh, shall you be John and I be Jeff? Okay. Okay, let's try this. This is, um, well, it, it, it hints uh, of the goon show, really, it's very it? much of the goon show. I think Spike Milligan could have sued. Yes. You brackish swine, thy pie swab fit. Help us gain to woo thee grit. Go hence thee battered bon of bane. Vile on you crust, though so there a pain. Don't quote my wrath, please kip her head. Oh, and on and on and on it goes. For a man who couldn't remember the lyrics to his songs, I don't know how he would have no. remembered the lyrics to this. Um, and there's also references to the John Moores show in the pantomime, which is quite a knowing reference. It is quite a knowing reference. And, you know, everyone's ambition at Art College in Liverpool was to get a painting in the John Moores exhibition. And there's Cinderella in this pantomime is constantly repeating the line, I got a painting in the John Moores show. Yes. And uh, it's, um, yeah, that's Buttons and Ella. You know, I must go and console her. So you have a painting in the John Moores. How marvellous. But Hort and Gwyneth won't let me go to the private view. Perhaps it is for the best. They are terrible things. But I wanted to be terribly arty and make the people think I am a beatnicker. There you go. You can see he's he's kind of taking the piss <laughs> out is. of the beatniks, but at the same time, he wants, he wants to be a beatnik. It's it's very um, meta, is that the word? That's the, the word they would have used in 1962. Pretty much. Um, as you say, Jeff Muhammad, he's quite a mysterious guy. John was writing to Cynthia in 1972 where he says, oh, I, you, you say Jeff Muhammad has died? Jeff Muhammad is quite a mysterious guy and John is writing to Cynthia in 1974. 74? Ah, right. Okay. It's apartment 72. Ah, I'm getting my 70s mixed up. And uh, these things are still on his mind. He disappears. Jeff Muhammad disappears from the story. And I was trying to, you know, I have done some research and I tried to find <laughs> someone out. What, asked her. Someone asked her. And I, I, I don't know what happened to him. But yeah, John writes in 1974, Dear Sin, this is the answer to your letter. I don't have it with me, so I can't really answer it. As you can see, I learned to type. When should I send May over for Julian? How long, etc.? You could tell me on the phone, I suppose, but I felt like typing. And then he says, hope the new house is fun. Say hi to Helen and gang. Was it you told me Jeff Mohammed was dead? What happened to Tony R? That's all for now. I need to know the details so I can plan accordingly. Lots of love to you, Julian and Lil, your famous ex-husband, John. And a big John scribble. Hmm. Back to the story of Stuart Sutcliffe, because the other kind of pivotal thing is that Stuart Sutcliffe rents a flat 
uh, in a building called Hillary Mansions in uh, Gambier Terrace in Liverpool 8, which is a very sort of garrety, squat-like existence. Um, and this is in early 1960 and everybody needs a flatmate. So along comes John. Along comes John. So it's not luxurious. So no. it's got bare floorboards, bare light bulbs, mattresses on the floor. It's your worst nightmare of student accommodation. You probably pay a fortune for it in Dublin. Three today. grand a month in Dublin, folks. <laughs> I'd say so. Um, and uh, But at this point, Stuart is getting involved in the group. Yes. So they're together in art college. They're now sharing a flat together and Stuart becomes involved in sort of acting a little bit like a booking agent. He sometimes lets them rehearse there. And George commented on this in Anthology and he said, Paul and I got to know Stuart Sutcliffe through going into the art college. Stuart was a thin, arty guy with glasses and a little Van Gogh beard, a good painter. John really liked Stuart as an artist. Stuart obviously liked John because he played the guitar and was a big Ted. (laughs) Stuart was cool. He was great looking and had a great vibe about him and was a very friendly bloke. I liked Stuart a lot. He was always very gentle. John had a slight superiority complex at times, but Stuart did not discriminate against Paul and me because we weren't from art school. He started to come and watch us when we played at parties and he became a fan of ours. He actually got some parties for John, Paul and me to play at. So you have this notion of a, I suppose you would say it's like a a house gig. Mm. You know, you're, you're playing a house party and Stuart is facilitating this. And, you know, January 1960, it's just worth reminding ourselves that Stuart and John would have been 19 years of age. Paul would have been 17 and George would still have just been 16 going on 17. Yes. As the song says. Um, But uh, there's a pivotal event then that happens in January 1960, because having made jokes about it at the pantomime the previous Christmas, what happens? Stuart gets a painting in the John Moore's exhibition. Ooh, and he still gets to be a a beat knicker. A beat knicker. To be technically correct, he gets half a painting. Yes, I think he thinks he's buying a painting and he just buys half the painting. It's this massive painting that sort of takes three or four of them to carry up the road and it comes in two parts and they just get bored having taken one part (laughs) to the exhibition and then they just head off to the pub. And I don't know what happened at the second half. So half of Stuart's murals, wall-sized painting is in the exhibition and John Moore's likes it and decides to buy it. And as you said, it's not clear if he knew that he was only buying half a painting. Um, But he gets the princely sum of £90 in January 1960 for his Demi painting. I haven't haven't ratcheted that through the inflation calculator. I'm going to assume that's a couple of grand these days. A couple of grand. But, you know, the weekly wage in 1960 was 10 quid. So not bad. Not bad. It just occurred to me half a painting is a very kind of Yoko thing. (laughs) Imagine half a painting. Now you paint the other half in the sky. Um, But the end result is that Stuart Sutcliffe has money in his pocket. And, you know, if you're a budding artist who's just sold a painting, the thing you really need to buy is a bass guitar. You squirrel that money away. Mm. Say buy paints and things. So, uh, yes, not if you're a friend of John Lennon. So what happens exactly? Well, they need a bass player. John... Paul, George, the rhythms in the guitars, they don't have, you know, they, <laughs> so they need, they need a bass player. And uh, they sort of pin, literally pin Stuart in the corner one night in the Casbah Coffee Club and just keep pressuring him to buy this bass guitar. And, you know, there are eyewitness accounts and Rory Best says Stuart was sort of hemmed in a corner. John and Paul would not take no for an answer, although Stuart kept saying no. Um, but he, he gives and it's very quickly afterwards. It's January the 21st, 1960, when Stuart Sutcliffe buys a Hofner 333 
and joins the band. And this is a very Beatle experience because he joins the band because he's uh, in the gang. Exactly. Not Not, because he's the best bass player, as we'll find out. Or even a bass player. (laughs) This is true. It's just you're you're a friend, you're part of the group, you've got some money, Mm -hmm. you're in. And, yeah, that's kind of quaint, I suppose. Yeah. And again, we have an absolutely on the record, literal eyewitness account from John Lennon that was published on the 6th of July, 1961 in Mersey Beat. And he says, on discovering a fourth little, even littler man called Stuart Sutcliffe running about them, they said, quote, Sonny, get a bass guitar and you will be all right. And he did, but he wasn't all right because he couldn't play it. So they sat on him with comfort till he could play. Now, this... uh we should maybe start to raise the curtain on the notion of Paul McCartney and Stuart Sutcliffe yes. as bestie mates. Best pals. <laughs> um, because Paul sort of admits that he was jealous of Sutcliffe's relationship with uh, with John Lennon, that it kind of put him in a, a back seat. And there's a quote here from Anthology where he says, you know, when he came into the band around Christmas of 59, January 60, we were a little jealous of him. It was something I didn't deal with very well. Now, I put we, that's my emphasis. Yes. Uh, you know, the italics are mine. And, uh, you know, was was we jealous or was I jealous? I think I was jealous. <laughs> I think so too. So Mark Lewison makes a good point here. And he said, Paul was number two with John. He was his yep. side man. He was his lieutenant. Since the middle of 1957, and then suddenly Stuart appears, and he's relegated to number three mm-hmm. in the packing order. And Mark Lewison makes the point that there was a physical aspect to this, that Paul was made to sit in the back seat with George when they were on the bus. So previously, <laughs> it was John and Paul were in the seat, and George was behind. Yep. But suddenly, Stuart is now in the front seat with uh, John, and Paul has to sit with George. How terrible. Well, you know, listen, teenage boys, they're they're a study in emotions, I suppose. I think the quote that you you read out there from Paul McCartney Anthology is very telling. So he does say, we were a little jealous. And then he says it was something I didn't deal with very well. And then he says, when Stuart came in, it felt as if he was taking the position away from George and me. Mm. So he puts George first in that sentence. <laughs> um, we had to take a bit of a backseat. But George didn't have to take a back seat. He was already in the back seat. Yes. And you don't hear George complaining about it, do you? You don't. No. You don't hear George complaining about Stuart at don't, all. George never complains and about anything. <laughs> no. And but weirdly, Paul says Stuart was John's age, mm-hmm. went to art college and was a very good painter and had all the cred that we didn't. So again, it's all about your age He's at this time. It's all back age. 18, 19, 17. It's all about age. It's that absolutely when you're that age, these few weeks, few months, absolutely crucial. I mean, I think Paul um, took to it in a very understandable way by smoking a pipe. Yes, he, he just, suddenly... Yeah. Yeah, that's started, weird. Started smoking a pipe. Yes. Look at me. <laughs> it's very weird. That is an insane thing. You start smoking a pipe and he talks himself about he would carry books around uh, to let people know that he was reading George books. Bernard Shaw and stuff. Yeah, yeah, I mean, a 17-year-old with a pipe in 1960 Liverpool, I'm sure he was one cool dude. I bet so. <laughs> against the... the James Dean uh, look of Stuart Sutcliffe. Um, but there's a lot happening in that January because, uh, you know, they, they they kind of move away from the Casbah, Mona Best realm yes. of things. So they prevail upon Stuart to buy a base. They're in the Casbah arguing with him or persuading him. The Casbah is their principal source of revenue at this stage. And then 
exactly that time, they sever all of their connections with the Casbah. And this is this is the Ken Brown incident. So Ken Brown is a member of the band. He turns up uh, to play, isn't feeling well. So he takes the money at the door. Mona says, oh, you have to pay him his equal share. There's a massive riot. Ken is out. And uh, they never play the Casbah again. Yeah, well, they you know they never rock the Casbah. They, they never say. rock the Casbah again. Um, so, but but you know they will obviously rock the Casbah again. But <laughs> they they just sever that. They just cut off their source of income. Yeah, and that was the last ever Ken in rock music. Yes, I think I'm pretty certain on that. Ken, Ken, Ken. <laughs> nope. No. Doesn't no, doesn't no, happen. No can do. Hey, um, so. Stuart has been kind of making bookings and allowing them to perform. He has this flat that they have access to. Um, but he finds out about this new club, the Jacaranda. Yes. And this puts them into the the realm of somebody who we haven't really spent much time talking about, but Alan Williams. Yes. I really regret that I never got to meet Alan Williams. Because, you know, if you could gone over to Liverpool and hung out in the grapes, he'd have come up and chatted to you about the Beatles and about his time. Alan Williams is a really fascinating character. And he is, he's got two volumes of autobiography. I would steer clear of the second one. Okay. The first one is called uh, The Man Who Gave the Beatles Away. And it's very entertaining. Okay. What's the second volume called? Can you remember? I can't remember. All I just, my grievances. I just, no, I just, yeah. And now liars. I, I, I'm, yeah. I just remember it wasn't very good. Fair enough. Um, but Alan Williams is pivotal because not only does he have the jacaranda, he, you know, he, he's a bit of a bohemian. He's a bit of a cool kind of guy. And he, you know, he gets uh, Stuart in to paint murals on the wall of the ladies, ladies in the, uh, in the, in the jacaranda rock and roll scenes, is it? Yeah, and it's that that sort of brings Stuart and Alan Williams together. And then Stuart is saying, hey, you know, I'm in a band. Yeah. A bit. Mm-hmm. Um, and uh, so so then Alan Williams, yeah, starts giving them a place to play. So the Jacaranda, I think, just takes over from the Casbah as the place where they hang out. Yes. And as we see, Alan Williams will make some pivotal decisions in, in upcoming weeks. But it's it's this notion, I think, of what was lost with Stuart Sutcliffe is that he could have been... Uh, this kind of art director figure, or he yeah. could have been, you know, if, if you kind of look at groups that came along later, there were figures in groups that might have been, you know, just lyricists, mm-hmm. um, you know, and like I'm thinking about... Um, Pete Sinfield and King Crimson. You've well, got no, to get I, your I, King I, Crimson. I was actually thinking of Keith Reed and Procol Harum. Ah, there you good. go. Or you think of someone like Roger Dean and Yes, you know, there mm-hmm. are these kind of, um, you know, uh, uh, ancillary figures who are important to the band. And you think, well, actually, Stuart, if you know, those types of roles existed, he, he could have proceeded in, in that realm because we do know, you know, the, the we'll find out, you know, the, the shadow that's cast by Astrid's photos and, yep. you know, Klaus Vorman kind of continues to do designs for the band. Um, that's where all of this could have led. I think that's the intersection mm. because the Beatles became known for their album art. Mm. You know, with other bands, it's just, you know, we put them in the petting zoo because it's called Pet Sounds and, you know, terrible artwork. But the Beatles do almost right from the beginning. They're, they're paying attention to that kind of detail. And as you say, Astrid, her photography is an influence. Klaus Vormann all the way through to Anthology is, is, is an influence. So, yeah, it, it's very easy to see that if he hadn't become a very proficient bass player, he could have still had a place or mm. a role, if not being a member of the band, he could have had a role in the 
wider organization, you know, with Mal and Neil and George yep. Martin and all of those people, and particularly you think once it got to 1968 and Apple. Oh, yeah. He could have just taken flight, you know, yeah. it would have been brilliant. And you think of also things like, you know, Robert Fraser and galleries and all those kind of 60s setups, you know, he, he could have slotted in right there. Um, but when we talk about the band and the presentation, there's no bigger issue than the band's name because they're still trading as the Quarrymen yes. at this point. So in April 1960, Stuart oh. is there. And he comes up with a name. And the name is? Beatles. <laughs> well, it's Beatles. It is Beatles. It's, it's Beatles with an A, with yeah. two A's. So it's Beatles, yeah, B-E-A-T-A-L-S, like metals, Beatles, Beatles, Beat, yeah. yeah. And this comes up, you know, when Stuart and John and Cynthia are, are kind of hanging around together and it's supposedly Buddy Holly's cricket. It's Buddy Holly and the cricket seems to be the reference. And Paul is quite clear about this in anthology and he said it was John and Stuart who thought up the name. They were art students and while George's and my parents would make us go to bed, Stuart and John could live the little dream that we all dreamed to stay up all night. And it was then they thought up the name. One April evening in 1960, walking along Gambier Terrace by Liverpool Cathedral, John and Stuart announced, hey, we want to call the band The Beatles. Hmm. And we can take a step back now, uh, many decades later, and say, of course, that's what they're called. But it is a very odd name. And it is a name that causes them problems and causes Brian Epstein problems when he's trying to sell the band as a concept uh, to record companies. And he recounts the fact that people laughed. People said, no, you have to, well, they'll have to change their name. They'll have to move from Liverpool to London and you'll have to get rid of that terrible name. Mm -hmm. And again, Mark Lewison would point out it was intended to be shocking. Yes. In a way that we're so familiar with it, as you say, it's not shocking, but it was part of the way they, you know, they dressed to shock. They acted in a way that was shocking. They were confronting the norms of the society. They mm -hmm. were, and in a way, Beatles. Yeah, it's it's an extension yeah. of, you know, this kind of John Paul George look dynamic. It's, it's, it's a, it is a bit of art direction. It's a, designed to make people stop and pay attention, uh, you know, stop them in their tracks. Yeah, you'd pay thousands of pounds today to some focus group to, to come up with something like this. And you it, wouldn't come up with that. You wouldn't come up with that. And it, it is interesting that it's Stuart that does this, that Stuart that, comes, that really is in, instrumental in this. And uh, Mark Lewis refers to a draft letter from Stuart where he's trying to rustle up a gig. And he what Lewis says is he catches the moment of transition. And he's actually written the quar and he starts to write <laughs> the quarry men and he scored that out and he writes B-E-A-T-A-L-S. And he never gave up. He never gave up <laughs> trying to get the A. Uh, I, I've even tried to draw it out with the Drop T logo. It doesn't really it doesn't work. work. It doesn't work doesn't at work. all. But they are the Beatles from this point onwards. And I think this is where we should take a quick break. End of part one. Intermission. Imagine the softest sheets you've ever felt. Now imagine them getting even softer over time. That's what you'll feel with and Branch's organic cotton sheets. In a recent customer survey, 96% replied that and Branch sheets get softer with every wash. Start getting your best night's sleep in these sheets that get softer and softer for years to come. Try their sheets with a 30-night guarantee. Plus, get 15% off your first order at bowlandbranch.com. Code BUTTERY. Exclusions apply. See site for details. 
millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom, like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, right? For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. End of intermission. Part two. Welcome back. So it is the spring of 1960. Stuart is now a beatle. A beatle. <laughs> a beatle. And, you know, he's, he's been given this bass guitar. The legend is that he could not play anything. And the other Beatles were great and Stuart was not. He was holding them back. He, yeah. Well, yeah. Um, but uh, what's the truth? The truth is, you know, people say he's not musical, but he did have a musical background. So he had sung in the local church choir in Houghton. He had taken piano lessons since the age of nine. He'd played the bugle. He was in the air training corps. Mm -hmm. And uh, his father had taught him some chords on the guitar. So there's a sort of reasonable background Hmm. there. But it was pretty elementary bass playing. And I don't think anybody is pretending he is a... I'm thinking of John Entwistle, who learnt, I think, bugle in the air corps and played bass. Exactly. There you go. Exactly. But uh, in anthology, George said he wasn't really a very good musician. In fact, he wasn't a musician at all until we talked him into buying a bass. We taught him to play 12 bars, like 30 Days by Chuck Berry. That was the first thing he ever learned. He picked up a few things and he practiced a bit until he could get through a couple of other tunes as well. It was a bit ropey, but it didn't matter at that time because he looked so cool. (laughs) We never had many gigs in Liverpool before we went to Hamburg anyway. So George is just sort of saying, didn't matter. We we were just playing these these sort of, uh, you know, pickup gigs around Liverpool. So he was good enough for that. And Again, George is focusing on the fact he looked great. He's part of the gang. He's part of the gang. close to the gang. Cynthia says that Sutcliffe used to spend every spare moment practicing, hoping for words of praise from John. Bit of projection there, I would say. I think that's exactly what I'd written in the margin. (laughs) And, uh, you know, uh, George Harrison also said it was better to have a bass player who couldn't play than not to have a bass player at all. Debatable. 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 Bill Harry Mm. was very against this. So again, Bill Harry is still part of that and he's the sort of the person who introduced them, he was saying, you know, you need to concentrate on art. You're not a musician, you're an artist. That's what you need to concentrate on. And there is a demo Mm -hmm. recorded around this time, uh, a bootleg from early 1960. It's got things like KN on it. Terrible, absolutely terrible. Yeah. So, and it's still pre-Hamburg at this time. Yeah, so, yeah. you know, they they are not exactly uh, they're they're a unit maybe emotionally. Yes. But they haven't become the kind of tight playing music uh, musical unit that they want. He, he eventually makes his live debut with them in spring 1960 at Art College, and uh, goes well. Goes well. There were reviews, and the reviews say. A complete fiasco. <laughs> One star. One star. <laughs> would, not, would not go again. No. Um, so, yeah, it's a bit it's a bit uh, loose. And this is the same time around uh, Easter weekend 1960 is when you have uh, the Nurk twins, John and Paul, playing their one-off Nurk yes, appearance. At Reading Festival. Well, Reading well, area. Reading. Yes. <laughs> the yes. first Reading Festival. The first Reading Festival. Yes. Uh, also the same weekend that Eddie Cochran is killed in a car crash. Hmm. Now, you've got an interesting sombre fact. I've got a sombre fact. The driver of Cochrane's car was George Martin. Hmm. Not that one. 
Well, <laughs> I, I he can, would have mentioned it. I think he? it probably would have been mentioned in biographies, but I just think that's a weird coincidence that the, the driver and you know Reading that that was quite close to where the accident happened, so. It's yeah. all connected. It, it, oh, yes. Does, does everyone have an alibi? Um, but again, by connection, Alan Williams was due to promote a show with Eddie Cochran and Gene Vincent in Liverpool, uh, you know, yep. in, in the following weeks. And uh, it, the, the show still went ahead with just Gene Vincent. It did. It did. So Gene Vincent is the headliner. There are lots of Liverpool groups, not the Beatles. Mm. Uh, Larry Parnes, however, was in the audience and he was impressed by the kind of backup uh, acts that the uh, support acts that were there. Stuart and George were mm-hmm. in the audience uh, at that time, but not John, who we know never really liked live going to see live bands. Yeah, much preferred records. Paul wasn't there, but out of that, Larry Parnes, who is we should say probably the preeminent impresario, yes, in Britain at that time, he asks Alan Williams to set up auditions uh, for a group to back Billy Fury, who was a rising star at the mm-hmm. time. So all of uh, Larry Parnes' stable of boys. Can we say that? Yes. Okay. Uh, had great names like <laughs> Billy Fury, Duffy Parr. Uh, Johnny Gentle. Johnny Gentle. <laughs> perhaps not quite so vavumish. No. Yeah. Well, you know, he's he was probably stroking a kitten and Owen McLove is what I'm thinking of. And this kind of starts a series of events where the Beatles, as they've been called for a couple of weeks at this point, start kind of putting themselves out there and yes. kind of moving beyond you know, what you've kind of described there as pickup gigs or just mm. local gigs. Um, and so in May 1960, they do uh, an audition for, for Larry Parnes. Yeah. So on the 10th of May 1960, this is at the Wyvern Club in Seal Street, Liverpool. And this is sort of famously their drummer at the time, uh, Tommy Moore, doesn't turn up. He's late. Mm. So they have to sort of improvise and they get uh, Johnny Hutch, uh, who doesn't like them. <laughs> thinks they're, you know, he thinks they're a waste of space. He, yeah. You know, at this stage, the Beatles are not highly regarded by any of their contemporary groups in in Liverpool. Yeah. Just so he sits in. They do the audition, and Stuart turns his back to Larry Parnes throughout the audition uh, because, as Alan, Alan Williams believed, he couldn't play very well, and um, Alan Williams says. Parn said he would employ the group, but only if they get got rid of uh, Stuart. Now, Larry Parnes denies this and says it was the drummer issue was the, the problem that he had with them. Yes, he's gone on record and saying, no, no, my only concern was they didn't seem to have a permanent drummer. Mm. And at this point, they're slightly, uh, their name is slightly changed to the Silver Beatles. Yes. Mm. It's fancy. <laughs> I suppose so. Um, the issue is, though, you know, accounts differ. So some people kind of talk about, you know, Pete Best says, you know, you know, Stuart was, you know, good natured. He was good part of the band, put on a bit of a show. Yeah. He says he's animated before an audience is when they're in Hamburg. Klaus Vorman says uh, he was a good bass player. Klaus says the Beatles were best when Stuart was still in the band and that Stuart played with great feeling. Hmm. Um, but what happens is they do get to um, back up Johnny Gentle. Yes. And they go off on a tour of Scotland. They weren't the first choice, but this is the kind of the first time that they are, for want of a better word, touring as professional musicians. Yes. And I think they just aren't ready for (laughs) this. They just aren't. They just aren't professional musicians. (laughs) They they really aren't. And, uh, you know, they turn up, 
they don't have money. They, they're not getting paid until the end of the tour. They're relying on handouts from people and fans and just the whole, there's a, the minibus crashes. The whole thing is just a bit of a disaster. And in one of our August the 23rd episodes, we, we sort of highlighted this, that when they go to Hamburg, mm. they have no real road experience as a band. Yeah, they haven't done the work. And by no. the work, I mean the actual playing to a professional level. They've done a lot of the work in terms of, you could argue emotionally, relationship-wise, mm. you know, all those kind of things. That The ideas uh, of, of existing as a band, they've spent a lot of work, yes. a lot of time on. Um, but they still aren't there yet. And, and they go off on this tour and... John Lennon says in, in Hunter Davis's biography, you know, we were terrible. And, you know, on this tour, uh, we tell Stewie couldn't sit with us or eat with us. We told him to go away. Um, you know, it was all stupid, but that's what we were like. And Paul was sniping at Stu the whole time and it's all unpleasant. It's very unpleasant for Stu, but he sticks with it. And, you know, the whole thing about Stuart in the band and turning his back and George would sort of say well that didn't really happen very much Paul is sort of saying we told him he had to do this Mm. and I think it's part of being John Lennon's friend in inverted commas that you have to almost go through that initiation that you are the butt of the jokes you you are being made fun of you know could you imagine being in a band where your bandmates say no you're not allowed to sit at the table with us you have to go and sit over there and it's almost like a test yeah I think it's. Uh, I think that band is called Journey these days. Probably they're suing each other um, and going out on every night on stage. And you know the dwarf bed story. Now, can we say that dwarf? Uh, yes. <laughs> do 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 you know the person of restricted growth story? Uh, <laughs> is that no, worse? I don't. That's, is that worse? that's probably more uh, convoluted. But go on. On one of these occasions, they're staying in a guest house, mm-hmm. and uh, they learn that the previous group of people that have stayed in the guest house was a circus troupe that included a dwarf. Mm-hmm. And they found out which bed the dwarf had slept in. And they mm-hmm. said to Stuart, you have to sleep in that bed. Stuart was very tiny. He was very short. <laughs> you can send your letters of complaint to one of the two of us uh, for that story. <laughs> um, they eventually make it back. Uh, and we should say, by the way, Stuart Sutcliffe wasn't on this tour. It was Stuart DeStale. Yes. yes. <laughs> His stage name after the painter, Nicholas DeStale. Yes. I'm probably saying that totally wrong. DeStale. 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 De I don't know. I don't know. I, I'm, I'm not good with my umlauts. But they come back from the, the trip and... Uh, they get back into regular gigs at the Jacaranda and their current drummer is... Norman Chapman. Norman Chapman. Another rotating stool a rotating drummer. drummer. A rotating <laughs> drummer. Yeah, I think Norman Chapman goes off. Uh, he, is, he is the example to them of what is about to happen because he goes off to do national service, I think. Yeah. So... And they are potentially looking at that yep. themselves. It's, it's only, uh, you know, that they, they miss out. They are the first generation to miss out on national yeah. service. There's a sort of a cutoff point. It just occurred to me, like, if John and Paul had gone to national service and George had been too young to go, Paul wouldn't have been so, you know, touch. <laughs> <laughs> he wouldn't have been so smug about being older than George then. No, anyway. he would have been, I'm George's age. Um, and they also record another demo tape in June 1960. They do. So this, is, this dates from, I think, the 18th of June 1960. And this is mostly John and Paul and probably... Stuart, there are six original songs, Hello Little Girl, One After 909, I'll Follow the Sun, Some Days, 
you'll be mine, you must write every day. And mm-hmm. such base as there is on this tape is better. Yep. And, uh, you know, it's worth seeking those out. But um, Stuart seems to be improving. Okay. And what happens next is obviously the stuff of legend. And we've touched upon this in the first part of our August the 23rd episodes. But August 1960 is the month where everything changes. Yes. um, As Take That One Said. And they, Alan Williams is asked to source a band to get to Hamburg. Um, He's already sent Derry and the Seniors, who later become Howie Casey and the Seniors. Mm -hmm. Howie Casey... Friend of the show. Friend of the show. Friend of the show. And, uh, you know, he's looked to, he's asked to source another group. And the Beatles are not the first choice. Not the first choice. By he, any stretch. Uh, by any stretch. He uh, initially thinks Rory Storm and the Hurricanes. But Rory and his group are committed to a Butlins holiday camp. Hmm. That'll be the day. That'll be the day. So then he says, okay, who's my second choice? Jerry and the Pacemakers. Hmm. But they all have day jobs. So they can't just up uh, and They leave. don't want to give up their day jobs. Uh, so third choice is the Beatles, and it's dependent on them getting a drummer. A drummer. Now, it's interesting to see that hierarchy that Rory Storm and the Hurricanes is top of the list because mm-hmm. we know that their drummer is a certain R star. Yes. And Rory Storm and the Hurricanes will eventually go to Hamburg. Um, and that Jerry and the Pacemakers, at this stage are still higher on the pecking order. So this thing we've talked about, about the Beatles are not really a, con, you know, a serious prospect no. gigging locally quite yet, um, is quite true. Absolutely. They are literally the third choice. Mm. Um, and so because Alan Williams has been, you know, promoting the Beatles on and off um, and they've played his Jacaranda club, he offers the Beatles the, the Hamburg uh, bookings and they are booked into Bruno Koschmieder's Indra Club in Hamburg, um, when and they're due to start on the twelfth of August, nineteen sixty. Um, and we should just, you know, rewind a little bit and just remind ourselves that Stuart Sutcliffe, as you know, has been pointed out, he's, he's kind of the art thing is kind of yeah. getting pushed out. You know, you could argue that, yeah, sure, none of them have day jobs, but Stuart has a potential alternative route. He does. He absolutely does. And this is this is the thing that Bill Harry was sort of saying to him when you know don't buy a bass guitar you know you're not a musician you have a very promising career Mm. as an artist and there is the sense that he is extremely well regarded extremely highly regarded by the teachers by other people on the course he is the star yeah of the year essentially and he's being asked to give that up speculatively to go to Hamburg to play bass guitar that he can't play very well with a group who are nowhere near the top of the tree, mm-hmm. even in terms of Liverpool. That is true. And yeah, he does have, you know, if you were to ask, you know, relatively speaking, what is he better at, bass playing or art? It's it's a no-brainer. He's yeah. been told that he's got a great art portfolio. He's got a, a talented painter. As you say, he's one of the star pupils. Uh, you know, he's already sold a painting. Yeah. So the logic should be that he should be working in this regard. Now, maybe with modern eyes, we would be a little less judgmental about, you know, spreading your artistic curiosity mm. into different places. But certainly at the time, there wasn't an obvious connection as there might be in later years between art school and rock and pop music. No. We can look at this with the benefit of hindsight and say, well, he went to Hamburg, he met Astrid. Yeah. But at this, this is the logical break point where he should be saying, this was fun, guys. Uh, had a couple of months doing this. Great. Really enjoy it. I'm not going to give up my promising art career. But that 
doesn't happen. Yeah, and it's worth seeing him just through that lens for a second because a few years later, you've got people like Sid Barrett, you know, Mm -hmm. art school, pop music. You've then a few years after that, you've got Brian Ferry, you know, art school, rock music. And then years later, you know, people like Jarvis Cocker and all the rest. It becomes a well-worn path that art school interacts with pop and rock music. But, you know, Stuart was a bit of a trailblazer in that regard, maybe, but an accidental trailblazer. Well, I think I think an accidental trailblazer, but he makes a conscious decision mm. to to follow John Lennon, to follow the band, to stick with the band, and to have that experience. And it's interesting to think: is that because he genuinely feels this is going to go somewhere, or I could be a musician? I I don't get a sense that that's it. I think it's more the experience. I think so too. I, I'm I'm certainly wary when this story gets told that somehow. Stuart is kind of swept along a wave as if he's not a person who has their own free will, you know? You're young. You're, you know, he's just turned 20 in June 1960. You know, you're, you're, you're after experiences. Why not do it? Nothing's written in stone. There's no obvious indication that this is going to be his lifetime job. It's just a hoot. Yes, it's just a hood. It's just it's just a lark, I think. And the decision is made easier because he suddenly finds himself in the newspapers. Well, yeah, now this is quite funny because we said at the start of 1960, they'd uh, moved into Gambier Terrace in this fabulous kind of studio uh, den of mattresses on the floor. Yeah. Now five grand a month. Yeah, it gets featured as the stars of a newspaper for some reason. It, it, it's, it's another one of those insane coincidences in, mm. in the Beatles story. So... The the People newspaper, which is Sunday newspaper, which for people outside the UK, it's all the salacious articles <laughs> and stories used to get published in the Sunday newspapers. They run an article entitled The Beatnik Horror. <laughs> and basically about, you know, corrupting of youth and how terrible young people are today. And it features a photograph taken in the flat below Stuart Sutcliffe's. And uh, this is Alan Williams is the connection. So he had arranged for the photograph. And uh, that's, again, he didn't think he was doing them a favour. But anyway, they, no, I think they, he, was, he was probably getting 50 quid. Probably. <laughs> so this is used to illustrate, you know, this is this is the terrible, uh, uh, depraved way in which young people are living. And the immediate consequence of this is they get evicted. Their, their, their landlord <laughs> pretty much immediately, immediately mm. evicts them. And uh, so the next day, having drafted Pete Best in, off they go. Off they go. Check in on August the 23rd. And it's, you know, Hamburg, uh, you know, the, again, the legend is large that it's this kind of the making of them. But yeah. if we look at just Stuart, you know, he when he gets to Hamburg, he's, this is where we get him wearing shades, all that kind of thing. He suddenly becomes the cool one mm. in the group. And I think it's, it's, it is the James Dean it is the sunglasses indoors. He's doing this, you know, every rock star from uh, Jeff Lynne to, to Bono, all your favourites. All my favourites. Wear their sunglasses indoors. Stuart is doing this. He's like in, in this basement club um, wearing sunglasses. And Paul talks about this in many years from now. And he said, Stuart was entering the good looking period earlier than that. Hmm, oh, Paul. Earlier than that, he looked a bit pimply and a bit art studenty. He'd never been number one in our pecking order. 
No, we'd be number two, Paul, and you were number three. <laughs> Pimply and small. It just goes on and on. But on stage in Hamburg, his stature grew. He wore his James Dean glasses, a nice pair of Ray-Bans, and he looked groovy with his tight jeans and his big bass. Oh, Paul. <laughs> uh, yeah, he says suddenly there was this transformation and with his shades and haircut, Stu became a complete dude. It was great. Classic, uh, uh, classic Paul. Yeah, he was pimply an art student and now he wasn't. Print the legend, right, Paul? Print the legend. Mm. So, again, this sets the scene for the sort of jealousy aspect that will, will emerge here. And again, it's all about that vying for position with, with John Lennon. So you think you, you have an impression from the Scottish tour that it was the, the, the three against Stuart. They're making him sleep in the bed that they didn't want to sleep in. Yeah. They're making him sit at a different table. But here, Stuart suddenly becomes a focal point mm-hmm. in the, within the band. And not because of his musicianship, but because of his personality, his look, his charisma. Yeah, and you still have the John, Paul, George kind of front line, yeah. which they've been working on for years. So it's this at this point, I think that you could say Stuart defines a look or a position mm. in the band, which is not part of that John, Paul, George, you know, I don't want to say talented lineup, but, you know, they'd been, the rhythm is in the guitars, yeah. as you yeah, say. Yeah. They'd been able to rock up wherever they wanted for years to do songs. So he's kind of slotting in. And again, in a way that we never get that similar kind of story for Pete Best, who's finding his feet in the group at this point in time as well. Exactly. Now, you do get a sense that Stuart is playing a part. Mm-hmm. You know, he is the art student. He is aware of image. He is aware of, of projecting something. And there is that sense that he's playing the part of a rock star. It's an art performance it's piece. It's a performance piece. Mm. And he gets a solo spot, so he sings Love Me Tender. <laughs> and supposedly, again, Mark Lewis will say he drew more applause than the other Beatles for this solo thing. And that, again, becomes a little bit tense and a source of friction. And you can understand if you're Paul McCartney and you are a great musician and you want your band to go ahead and actually it's the guy who looks great but can't play is getting the applause. <laughs> for Drives just, you crazy. It, it, it becomes, yeah, you can understand that. You can understand that. In yeah. I mean, Paul, you know, the, the thread through all of this, Paul does take himself seriously. Yes. And that, you know, should not be a complete crime. No, no, absolutely. I mean, you, you, you've got to think if Paul wasn't there, mm-hmm. if it had been that lineup without Paul. It would have just been larks. Yeah, it's just hijinks. Yeah, Hijinks and larks, Messers. They play their first gig at the Indra Club on the 17th of August, 1960. And, uh, you know, they, they start doing the Hamburg lifestyle. He bumps into Ringo Starr one day. Yes, Stuart is the first Beatle that Ringo meets. So again, Ringo talks about this in anthology and he said, one morning when I first got to Germany, I was wandering around, wondering where to go. And I bumped into Stuart in Grosse Freiheit. I didn't really know him at all, but he took me to a cafe that sold pancakes and got me my first meal. Ah, good old nice. Ringo, isn't that nice? Um, but, you know, the, the, there, there is a jockeying for position. Lennon is kind of starting to criticise Stuart a little bit, making fun of his stature and his playing. He is all very, kind of very short. If you look at some of those photographs, he's tiny and the bass guitar that he's playing is huge, which just accentuates uh, his height or lack of height. And yes, so you could argue that, you know, in the initial stages, Stuart mightn't have had much to enjoy in Hamburg. There mightn't have been much to keep him there or for him to see where his future lie. But then very famously, one night, Klaus Vormann is out and about and he stumbles across a band playing uh, in a bar and he goes in to investigate and that band is 
Rory Storm and the Hurricanes. And that's where we'll leave it for the first part of Stuart Sutcliffe. Rory Storm and the Hurricanes, I wonder what happens next. Who knows? Who knows? But we will continue the story of Stuart Sutcliffe in part two next week. We remain available in all the usual places. The Nothing Is Real Facebook group. Uh, We're on Twitter at BeatlesPod. Everything is findable through www.nothingisrealpod.com. William is helming our Instagram. And uh, we also want to thank all our Acast Plus people for supporting us and uh, there's a whole series of episodes going on over there the 16 songs of 1966 which we encourage you to go and have a look at but for now my name is Jason Carty my name is Stephen Cockcroft and this has been Nothing Is Real thanks for listening Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And is all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash pack for free shipping and 365-day returns. Thanks for listening to Nothing Is Real. We hope you enjoyed today's episode, and if you did, why not become a member? You'll get access to ad-free content, bonus episodes, and so much more. Follow the link in the show notes, sign up on ACAST+, or visit our website, nothingisrealpod.com.